Today, we'll be discussing joke theft in comedy, and we'll also look at some medical TV shows and movies and ask the question, did they get it right? This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. I'm not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. In every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and questions me on that topic. So later on, we're going to be talking about medical TV shows and movies and asking the question, did they get it right? But first, we're going to be talking about joke theft. So Ali, we're going to be talking about joke theft in comedy. I think before we get started, maybe we should just, for our listeners, define what joke theft is to you. Yeah, I mean, we should define it to listeners because, in fact, it's the listeners who would be sort of least affected by joke theft. Something that's so precious to comedians and creative people, performers, but audiences would be like, eh, I don't really care who wrote that joke. And that's the most unfortunate part about it, that when you start uh, championing your own cause, that somebody stole my joke, you don't really have uh, an audience on your side. So it is this idea of, quite simply, you creating something, taking uh, a thought, an idea you have, and working it and working it. And sometimes, you know, your, your bit, your joke can take years quite literally years until it is in that final polished form where you could you know take it to um a a a tv set or a or a late night set or whatever the case might be and then uh joke theft is quite simply somebody strolling up hearing the joke and going i like that joke i'm gonna start using it with no actual effort of their own. It's no different from you studied and you studied and you studied for an exam in high school or college and somebody just <clears throat> having done no effort took all your answers and you, you're, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's really super comfortable with that. But sometimes in, in our case, it's you're taking money out of somebody's out of somebody's hands, quite literally in, in, in the case of, uh, you know, professionals who are comedians. And I guess sometimes it may be hard to actually prove joke theft. And maybe I'll use an example to kind of illustrate this. Mm-hmm. So most people here don't know this, but uh, some time ago I tried to do a stand-up comedy set, right? I um, uh, went to an amateur night here in Ottawa. Yeah, you didn't uh, just try. And- you succeeded. You succeeded. Oh, that's it's so like, nice. Like- One day that will be unearthed from the vault and people may be able to hear that. So I did about an eight-minute comedy set. And it was a night that Ali was actually here in Ottawa hosting the amateur night. And so um, I went and did the set and um, basically I had this joke. And so the joke is uh, about an airplane. So, you know, when you're on an airplane and you're heading someplace south, uh, like Mexico or uh, the Caribbean or something like that, and the plane touches down, why is it that everybody suddenly breaks into applause, right? And why are we applauding the pilot? He did his job perfectly normally. <laughs> he did, he landed the plane safely and we didn't die. Well, that deserves applause. And I was thinking, you know, what, what if the opposite would happen, right? Like what if there was some turbulence on the way down and people were like, boo, boo, you suck, right? So that was basically the joke. Uh, and, uh, and so that was part of the set. 
And, uh, well, Ali, why don't you tell us what happened next? Because you were in Toronto a couple of weeks later, which, for those of you who don't know, Ottawa and Toronto about a four-hour drive away in Canada. Yeah, I was, you know, so you had sort of run your set by me before mm-hmm. you had performed it. So I already enjoyed that joke because you went into a territory that's what, what we call very hacky. <clears throat> it's been done to death, airplane travel. Right. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld alone has probably done 80% of all the material uh, that, that that's worth listening to. And that was in the 80s. So I felt like you you went into a, a pretty hacky area and you came out with a, a pretty uh, fresh take that I had never heard before, uh, booing an airline pilot. And I thought it was great because there's an act out, there's a great visual in it. And I was, uh, you know, I was proud of you for having uh, put that on stage. But then three weeks later, I'm in Toronto and I hear somebody tell the exact same joke. And I was like, wait a minute, how have I gone this many years of my life never having heard it? Then my buddy tells the joke. Then three weeks later in a city, you know, my first instinct was to be, uh, to, to call you. And then also to start <laughs> you know, investigating where this guy was three weeks ago. And if this, it, and uh, obviously there was no follow through on my part, but I was very passionately angry on your behalf in that moment. But you also have to take a step back and be like, okay, listen, in any city in North America, there's like a hundred comedians. In the large cities, there's, it goes into the thousands, right? Right now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, if we're being, if we're, is Tulsa in Oklahoma? It is. I thought it was in Nebraska for a second. Jesus, sorry. Tulsa, I'm very sorry. Tulsa, Oklahoma right now, you you know, you could have some comic thinking about this exact same idea uh, if it wasn't a pandemic, putting it on stage. So you have to be a little bit less precious about these things but it was just the proximity in in distance from you to your your joke and the proximity of time uh it had just been a few weeks and uh yeah i was kind of bought like in my head i created an entire narrative like this guy was like oh man that guy was a doctor he's not even a comedian he's never going to use this joke i'm just going to take it and so uh, that actually happens to be true. You never did another set again. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that unrelated, unrelated to that guy. <laughs> How'd that guy know? Yeah, uh, but but that's that's where joke theft lives. It lives in sort of a, a, a some level of resentment on the part of the other performer. And Patton Oswalt, in fact, has written an incredible, it was like a letter to himself, open letter to himself about a number of things, but especially about joke thievery. And he wrote about that, that it's this, it's people's resentment. Oh, you're not even, you're not even a headliner. I'm a headliner. Right. Why are you doing that joke? It's such a good joke. I should have that joke. Dude, I'm, Sorry you feel that way, uh, but you didn't write it. You're just not smart enough to have come up with that joke. And, uh, and you know, your resentment really plays no role here. But, but it, it often does, and it's often the reason why, uh, why joke theft exists. Well, I want to get into that in a second, which is basically what you would do, like, if, especially if you're someone kind of lower on the totem pole in comedy, what would you do? But I, I want to get back to one other thing you mentioned, which is, you know, the possibility, maybe this guy did hear my joke, it's possible, but it's also what you talked about, that, that common things are common, and there are some common things that are funny, right? Mm-hmm. And it's certainly possible to come up with similar jokes in, com- from, in completely different people who just have a good sense of humor. Absolutely. So this is called parallel thinking, and, uh, and it happens all the time. And in fact, there's a very famous uh, case <clears throat> with Conan O'Brien, who um, 
who actually settled with somebody who accused him of stealing his jokes. Uh, it's a, it's a writer. He's a he's a joke writer, professional joke writer. He's written for a number of uh, you know uh, high level comedians. I, I can't remember his name, Kassenberg potentially. Anyway, he accused Conan of, of stealing, uh, not just accused, but I mean, his lawyers got involved. It's like, you took this joke. Look, I posted this joke on Twitter. And then you, one of your late night writers from your writing team took the joke and you did it uh, two days later on your show. And he sued him and Conan settled with him. And Conan immediately after settling, um, you know, had had one of the writer's assistants sort of monitor monitoring more carefully, not just that guy, but other accounts. Like, are we just ripping off Joe? And Conan immediately realized, he said, what the, this guy, after I did my monologue, has had like 15 jokes on Twitter that I've done. And he's the guy suing us. And so he felt immediately, I, I'm sure Conan was just like, man, I have too much money and, and, and I'm too malleable here. Why, why did I just uh, lay back? And, and so, but I, I think, you know, I understand Conan saying as soon as lawyers involved, if you're not that type of um, what's that called? Um, uh, a person who's always involved in legal battles. What is, I don't know what the word is. Uh, clearly you don't e either. Asif, thank you for your help there. But anyway, if you're not one of those people who's constantly involved in battling, you're like, Oh my God, a lawsuit. I don't want this. I don't want this on my head. I'll just settle. And he said he settled amicably, but he was like, man, after that, you realize, you know, in his letter in variety, I encourage people to look at it. He said, look, if you look at Twitter, it, it, it on any given day, it, it looks like 60% of Twitter is trying to be a stand-up comedian. And so if something happens, there's a race of uh, hundreds of thousands of people trying to get to the first joke about that thing. And in that process, there simply will be parallel thinking so much so that there's a, um, there's a phenomenon. It's been named by a couple of women, one from the uh, Huffington Post, uh, one from I think MSNBC, and both of them called it tweet saming. It is a it is a known tweet saming, tweet saming, saming. Not, yeah, shaming. not shaming, saming, saming, and it's a it's a very well known phenomenon. So I don't think you'd have much of a recourse to sue a late night host anymore, but. Um, but yeah, no, it's still very much a thing. And, 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 and Twitter has complicated matters. I'll tell you that for sure. Twitter has definitely complicated matters because people are like, that's my joke. And it's like, well, you're a plumber who made, just said something on, this is not your job. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. A hundred other people had this tweet also. So should all hundred sue us? And some people might say, yeah, maybe, maybe all hundred people should have a, you know, maybe it should be a class action lawsuit, but it's very, very difficult to prove as you, you, you yourself said. And I get that about the parallel thinking like that. I mean, totally makes sense to me, but as we talked about before, and like I said, I, I thought we'd get back to this. There is like more obvious joke stealing. And I think there's lots of examples in comedy, mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, there's Carlos Mencia, yeah. um, even Robin Williams, who we're going to actually, I think, talk about a bit later in the second part of our episode, will. who has been accused as well. So I don't know. And those are, again, these famous people often taking jokes from comics who are lower down on the totem pole, as mm -hmm. we said. And then, you know, how, what's their recourse? How do they deal with it? Well... Carlos Mencia, who I encourage no one to look up, uh, was a real piece of trash human being. He um, he came from that place of resentment, definitely, and just took jokes wherever he felt like it. 
and he he was rewarded. I think he had a show on Comedy Central for more than one season. He's yeah. wherever he is, he's he's definitely um, he's been sort of you know uh, put in the hall of shame of comedians. But he's enjoying a lot of money. So at least we don't have to see his face and see anything he puts out anymore. But he's he made a lot of money in his time taking a lot of jokes from people. But it's interesting because uh, my understanding it was Joe Rogan, who now is, you know, has the most popular podcast basically on planet Earth, mm. uh, ex- doing extremely well for himself, uh, who called out Carlos Mencia initially. But then when he did that and he actually accused him at a comedy club and i think you can find that on youtube the actual confrontation yeah when he when he did this but then you know if you hear joe rogan talk about afterwards he was kind of blacklisted and wasn't invited back to comedy clubs and kind of had to work his way back up even though other comics agreed with i thought he was right it is i think i think carlos had surrounded himself with so many like you know yes men and not just yes men but people who he had supported and given a leg up to so you see like in the in that one video people were like Ari Ari Shafir who Joe liked uh had a joke stolen from him by Carlos so Ari was obviously trying to be you know on on Joe's side whereas Bobby Lee was like hey don't put me in that position Carlos Mm -hmm. has been very good to me and I understand Bobby's thing too sometimes somebody has supported you and you just like hey can you leave me out of this please I don't mind if this guy goes down but don't put my voice on record for him in time the story ends well right uh Joe Rogan as you said the top podcaster has carved out quite a niche for himself Bobby Lee uh, you know, headlines the Yuck Yucks and Ajax. You know, I'm nothing bad against Yuck Yucks and Ajax, but I could headline the Yuck Yucks and Ajax, mm-hmm. right? Like if I work with the Yuck Yucks chain here in Montreal, in, in, in Canada, I could I could be a headliner there. So his his career has, I don't know. I, I don't think it's related to all that, but, you know, it, it's just nice to see the guy who stood up for something actually had some 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 good happen for him. And of course, Joe Rogan himself has become a much uh, a controversial figure, but but you can't deny that he, on behalf of other comedians, he had never had anything stolen from Carlos Mencia, but he used to call him Menstelia, Menstelia. Right. Uh, and he was like, we should say something. We should say something. What is this? Um, so he had the, uh, he had the you know, um, integrity to say something where, where others couldn't. Uh, in Robin Williams' case, I don't think it's resentment. I think it was a guy who was, uh, first of all, very, very high in demand. I mean, he was like, every late night show wanted him on. They would have had him on a weekly if they could. He was an insane entertainer. Um, Late night talk shows, uh, comedy shows, they all wanted a piece of Robin Williams. So what happens is that you have to have something new and fresh and creative to say every week. And, you know, people should understand, like, sometimes it takes you a year to get a great five minute set. Sometimes it takes you longer. So this guy would have to have a new five minutes every probably month and and that doesn't seem difficult, but to have tried and true that works, that kills, it does take time. And so I think at some level he was like, okay, um, that joke sounds good. I'll, I'll do a version of that. He was also on a lot of cocaine. He was also fried out of his mind. <laughs> right. So probably yeah. not even realizing what he was like digesting and taking. And I don't think it was resentment, but I think it was like a bunch of different factors. 
That's what I was going to say. I think Robin Williams' comedy is so different in that he's going, you know, not a mile a minute. He's going 100 miles a minute, yeah. right? He is going so fast. The amount of jokes that he'll have in an eight-minute set is probably double or triple than the average person. And so, and he, it's his is almost stream of consciousness, right? So he, he may be even subconsciously pulling from other things he's heard and other Absolutely. comedians he's heard. Yeah. Again, I don't know, um, but that's, you know, something I thought about a lot when I heard about his uh, joke theft. And I think the general public, uh, you know, if they haven't tuned out already on this subject, like who cares? It's you, you see that. You actually see that. There's a comedian named Nick Toon, very funny guy. I have in the pandemic seen him in three different films, just me personally. I'm not even searching for Nick. I'm like, oh, there's Nick again. There's Nick mm -hmm. again. Some of them indie films, some of them bigger films. <clears throat> He's a good actor, great performer. And somebody on Twitter took a joke that he made on Twitter. Right. Right. So he tweeted a joke and then he was like, you took my joke and then repurposed it. But that person was like, I don't know, a dental hygienist or something. And so people were like, dude. Why do you care? Who cares that somebody with her own totally random following uh, got some play? You're a professional performer. This doesn't affect you. And he was like, no, I want to say something about it because it does bother me and I can say something about it, so I will. But to the general public, he kind of, kind of looked like a whiny kid. You know, the public yeah. is like, you have success, you're doing fine, what do you care if somebody, but I know, I know where he's coming from. He's also coming from, this is a slippery slope. You let this slide, you let this right. slide, you act like, oh, I don't care about this. And next thing you know, uh, material that you've taken a long time to create and write is, uh, is just being used willy nilly because you didn't take a stand originally. And you have all that uh, quote unquote baggage of knowing all these stories from years things that happened to you things that happened to friends people who you hated doing this to other people and all that sits in your head and you watch some person from wherever do i say tulsa again from tulsa take your joke and uh and i only know one city in the world <laughs> uh and i can understand why you'd be furious about it but it doesn't look good to the general public unfortunately and, so, and in the end, your question was, what do you do? What would I do about it? I think that's where you're going. What do you actually do? Um, a punch in the face has been something many people have used, the <laughs> technique used. Because you know why? Because once, <clears throat> once somebody uses your bit in sort of a high-profile situation on television, on a late-night show, it's, it's actually no longer your bit effective. Right, it's gone. It's gone. You can't be like, that's my joke. Well, that guy just did it for 3 million people on a late night show. So not really. You've lost your joke. Mm -hmm. So all the work that you put into that joke and all the experiences you've had telling that, all, all gone, all for nothing. And so your frustration uh, as a normal person would, would be very, very high. And there's nothing you can do about it. So many people have, there's well-documented cases, somebody just stepping up to somebody as they step off stage or as they leave a club and punching them in the face. And it's like, that's all you can do. You know why you got punched. You know why I punched you. I feel a tiny bit better for having done it. And there's nothing you can really do about that punch either because you know why it happened. And if you say like, I didn't even do it, you can, you know, you know what you did wrong. As a non-violent person, as a guy who whose hand would hurt if I punched somebody in the face, uh, <laughs> I don't know what my recourse is. Honestly, the, what I've seen now, where Twitter can actually help or social media can actually help you, is you put up two videos side by side. I've seen a lot of people do that. Right. Here's his joke. 
here's my joke. I started telling this joke in the and so one person and I don't remember who this was took a variety of posts, you know, uh, no, not posts, but 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 video screen grabs of like here's me telling it in July two thousand and six. Then it's them again in in sort of in motion of the joke but now their clothes are changed and it's a different club background oh, right. and then again they change so it was like three different uh backgrounds and uh, three different you know different attire and so you see that look i've been telling this over years in many different clubs many different places and then you see somebody else just sort of tell the joke and uh, they go okay you decide so you put it to the court of public opinion that works. Your peers definitely will be like, wow, that, that comedian definitely stole your joke. But again, the general public, many people, you know, not just the public, but, but even comedy bookers, with rare exception, even comedy bookers are like, oh, he stole a joke. Oh, that sucks. Anyway, he brings people to my club and he makes me money or she makes me money. So that's uh, the she I, I have to add in also because, uh, you know, Amy Schumer was one of the most high profile cases, having taken jokes from other very high profile Comedians, Carol Liefer, um, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember her name right now, but there's a number of different female comedians who uh, who accused her of joke theft as well. Oh, Tammy Pes- Pescatelli, veteran, veteran comedian, fantastic comedian, you know, uh, done a lot of great work, and they were watching Amy Schumer again. Young, uh, ambitious, uh, needed material, was in demand, and that's often where this happens. Somebody who's in demand and has to churn out stuff every day, week after week. These things take time. These things take time. And if somebody is like, with the exception of, uh, at one point, you know, Louis C.K., uh, Jim Gaffigan, there's a couple of like real prodigies, but often if you're churning out an album every year, you're probably taking a lot of, either you're doing subpar work or you're taking material from, from, from people, a.k.a. stealing. Well, it's a pretty uh, sad state, and and you're right. It seems like if the general public isn't interested, it's up to the comedians to police themselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm thinking, should I do like a sternly worded YouTube video to get back at that guy from 10 years ago who stole my joke? Is that what you think? Uh, That's your suggestion, right? I don't uh, don't remember his name. Uh, He is nowhere. Whoever that person was, he also went nowhere. So... Maybe that joke wasn't that great. I think maybe we'll have to uh, we'll have to recognize that that joke maybe ended his career as well. Okay, now Asif, my question for you comes from: um, Do you remember a certain person named Oprah? Do you remember Oprah? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Well, Oprah is a legend. And on Oprah's show many years ago, there were some firefighters talking about the movie Backdraft. Do you remember Backdraft? Oh, I love Backdraft. Less likely that you'd remember Backdraft than Oprah. But um, <laughs> Backdraft was a great movie. And it was like super exciting. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, man, firefighters are the best. These guys risk their lives every single day. And these firefighters on Oprah were like, you know, some of them were like, I've been working 20 years, never seen a backdraft. Somebody was like, I've been working 30 years, seen it twice. And it's it's very rare. And so I remember, A, feeling cheated as a viewer. I thought every fire was a backdraft. So first of all, I felt lied to by Hollywood. But number two, I felt like, oh, wait a minute. How often does this happen? 
How often does the layperson get fed some information that's just complete nonsense? And so now in this format, in this podcast, I finally have the opportunity to ask you, and you can tell all of us, uh, you know, are these, are various movies getting it right? And we had talked about Robin Williams and we can't have this, you know, we can't have a medical, um, uh, you know, TV shows or medical um, movie conversation without talking about Robin Williams. So the first movie I wanted to talk to you about, which I've spoken to you about before in the past, is the movie Awakenings. Did Awakenings get it right from a medical perspective? Well, I mean, first of all, I got to say, I love Awakenings. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, And, uh, you know, it came out around 1990. And this was, um, you know, Robin Williams plays, you know, a fictional neurologist, but really it's based on Oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist and wrote the book Awakenings in the 1970s. And you yourself are a pediatric neurologist, people, if they don't know. so. And in fact, Oliver Sacks is one of the reasons I went into neurology. I love his books. Uh, He's a real uh, inspiration to me uh so i i love i love all of her sex mm-hmm. and so this movie like it it it's um it really uh affected me uh basically in the movie uh this doctor played by robin williams uh, finds a bunch of patients who have been chronically admitted to a hospital uh because they had what's called encephalitis lethargica so they had um uh, basically a flu epidemic uh, caused these patients to have inflammation in their brain and they had what's called this encephalitis lethargica where they were kind of basically sleepy, comatose, catatonic mm-hmm. for years and years. And he thought that maybe if you gave them this drug levodopa or L-dopa that may restore some of their functioning and it did. And so Robert De Niro plays a patient who is awakened after decades and has to deal with like Basically, he like time travels, right? Not literally, but figuratively. Sure. Where now he's in the future, and, and he has to deal with all the time has changed so much, uh, and and how he kind of interacts with that. And of course, a slight spoiler, but this really happened. <laughs> the effects wore off over time, right? And right. these people who had awakened slowly go back into their catatonic state. I think you can forgive yourself for giving for giving people a spoiler from a movie from 1990. Huh? You had enough time. 30 years ago. Yeah, you had enough time. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault. Um, But watch it for those performances, both Robin Williams, uh, both Robert De Niro, but especially Robin Williams. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And so I I would give this a high grade. So how do we, how do you want to grade these? Well, was El Dopa a real thing? I know El Dopa is a rapper now, a very famous. I did did not know that. I did not know that. I leave it open. It's a real medication, and we use it sometimes in, in neurology. It's used for Parkinson's disease the most. Okay, uh, definitely. So it's it's a commonly used medication nowadays. Um, okay. Yeah. So what part of this movie was fictional? What part of the movie was fictional? Yeah. Uh, they, the 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 fact that they focus on this one person. I'm not sure that that person ever existed. Okay. And so they kind of amalgamated all these stories uh, into this one kind of person. And if you watch the movie, this person has a romantic relationship with somebody he meets in the movie okay. like Robert De Niro's character the patient sure 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 and, and so you know it's um uh, it's that stuff is obviously kind of made but in terms of the the medicine the medicine is very solid in it. right okay so then that was uh, that one gets an a plus or I don't know are we should we grade it with some medical instruments 
Thermometers like, in the bun, bum. How many thermometers in the bum does that get? Don't don't know. It's a bit inappropriate. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or bad thing. If you get a high score, right. stethoscopes. Okay, we'll say stethoscopes. So we'll do. I'll give this nine out of ten stethoscopes. Okay, great. Staying with Robin Williams, another very famous movie, also in the medical world, Patch Adams. How did Patch Adams do? Oh God, please oh, God. God. <laughs> uh, I feel the stethoscope I, just dropped on the ground. I have to be a bit careful. This is one of my wife's favorite movies, and my wife is also a physician. But this movie is, uh, I mean, so it came out in the late 1990s. And this was um, supposed to be the biography of Hunter Doherty, nicknamed Patch Adams. He's a real physician. He's a real physician. He's a real clown, uh, actually, like a, a, a clown in a medical uh, um, setting. And uh, it's supposed to be all about his life. And, you know, I'll, I'll take a step back to talk about uh, Hunter Adams, Patch Adams, uh, because really a great man. He's in his 70s now. Uh, obviously wanted to bring aspects of caring and this clowning and, and, and this joy to patients. But he really had a mission uh, in West Virginia to build a nonprofit free hospital in America, which is relatively uncommon <laughs> and free for everybody who, who went there. And, uh, and and that's good. There's a place there, the Gesundheit Institute, but he has a dream of expanding it and making it this huge free hospital. And uh, so he's done a lot of good work. And so, but the movie really just focuses on, oh, I'm a, I'm a crazy, funny clown and you serious uh, administrative doctors don't get it. And I'm the person who connects with the patients and you guys are just out to lunch. And it's so simplistic, uh, so sanctimonious. I mean, you know, you don't need to put on a red nose uh, and act like a goof to mm. connect with patients, especially the pediatric patients. Uh, I, I don't act like a goof that often in front of my patients <laughs> other than telling them dad jokes, but you know, it's not necessary. And, and I just, and, and, and so I really thought it simplified it. And uh, if you look at the critics from that you know, time period, Lisa Schwartzbaum from entertainment weekly gave it like an F Roger Ebert uh, and uh, an F for fantastic. And the other F. The other F, okay. The scholastic F. Okay. Um, and Roger Ebert and uh, Gene Siskel gave it two thumbs down. And sadly, Gene Siskel, well, I mean, Roger, Siskel and Ebert, my favorite film critics, um, Siskel uh, said it was one of the worst movies of 1998 when he came out. Hmm. And it was the last movie he was able to give worst of before his death in 1999. Oh, my God. Uh, there was no relation between his death and the movie no. Patch Adams. I just want to be <laughs> clear about that. But and and the, the the sad thing is, Patch Adams has said that he was really disappointed with it because a it didn't focus on his philanthropic endeavors; it just focused on his kind of clown, clownishness, clownish okay. demeanor, and no money went towards from all the millions of dollars that movie made and was a hit. Yeah. No money went towards him and to build the free hospital. So um, because of that, I agree with Ebert and Siskel. Two of my thumbs way down. Yeah. But I guess on our thing, it is a big zero out of 10 stethoscopes. <laughs> um, Gene Siskel famously said, I would rather turn my head and cough than see another moment of Pat Adams again. <laughs> they really had a good time there. I, you know, you you go through the comments on that movie and it's um 
it's quite a field day of ripping into a film. All right. Well, Robin Williams, one out of two ain't bad, huh? Nice and don't try, get me wrong. Uh, we love Robin Williams. You and I, is, of course, I mean, yeah, I'm a he huge, is huge one of the best actors. It's very sad that he's left us, but um, you, listen, and I, I just praise one of his movies, so I, I think it's fair to openly criticize that one. Of course. Now, let's talk about another actor who I, I just absolutely love. Uh, he's not just an actor. He's just an insanely talented, creative person. And uh, he raised me. He had a role in raising me, even though I think he's younger than me. But uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, yeah. Some of you may remember. Some of you may not. He was Doogie Hauser, And Doogie Hauser became so much part of society that we would... Tell people, look at this guy, he's a Doogie Howser over here. Check out Doogie Howser. Like it was just constantly, if you skipped a grade, hey, way to go, Doogie. Right. Like it was just, he was everything. It was everywhere. And um, I don't know, at no point did I ever question, I'm sure at one point, I was like, come on, a kid doctor. But then at some point you just, it just became so normal. Like, I mean, why not? Why not? You know, the human brain <laughs> is a complicated place. Maybe there can be genius kids who could be teenagers and uh, and doctors um did uh, doogie hauser get it right and and also before you answer know that this show is, is it means everything to me so go easy here this tv show came out when we were in high school and so we we're on the same age as doogie uh i love that show It's created by stephen Boschko and david e kelly who are uber producers now right, in in back then and now in, in hollywood and uh yeah he was i think uh doogie hauser's character was um by age 14, I think, went to finish med school and then was starting his residency, basically when he, other people would be in high school. Hmm. And um, it's not that dissimilar. In fact, when I was in medical school, a, a, a year below me, there was someone who started medical school at age 18. So in other words, it finished their high school, undergraduate, everything, and starting medical school by age 18. So it's not impossible, I guess. Um, and I, uh, similar to you, have fond memories of that show. Again, it was just kind of living through that same age and, and Doogie Howser. And I think I may be a bit skewed by how much I like the show and his interactions with, uh, um, you know, his buddies and Wanda, his his girlfriend, and uh, and and the, and the the physicians and nurses at the hospital, uh, mm-hmm. and him typing at the end of it. You know, his diary on his DOS uh, computer. Uh, but so I, I, I may be a bit biased by my fond memories, but I'll give it like a seven out of 10. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. You, uh, <laughs> I can still keep my head up high for believing in that show. Okay. I want to stay in the comedy world, uh, move into 2000, into the two thousands, uh, a show that gave me a lot of laughs, but I assume, uh, medically may not have been sound was the show Scrubs, a really like a great comedy show what did you how did you feel about uh, scrubs how did that work out how many stethoscopes are we giving these guys well again like scrubs i think it uh, it it it, it, mir- it mirrored my life again because while uh jd the main character played by zach braff was starting his residency at the fictional sacred heart hospital the tv show came out in 2001 and i started my residency in 2000 so it was around the same time and so uh and, I, you know, another show that I love, like uh, created by Bill Lawrence, who uh, has made Cougar Town. He's made the new show Ted Lasso, which yeah. if anyone hasn't seen that on Apple Plus, it's amazing. Recommend. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I loved it. And in fact, I would say there's no better 
TV series that encompasses the life of being a resident in, in medicine that I've seen. Uh, and, and you might think, yeah, but it's a comedy. What about, you know, his the quick asides and the jokes and, and him uh, joking around with Turk, right? And all these things. But mm. that's all part of it. Like, you do j- joke around and laugh at work and then you'll have these very serious sad and somber times as well and that's the dichotomy of being in medicine is sometimes you have to laugh to um uh to get through the day and things sure. like that and i thought it was so well uh, encompassed by that television show and and how it turned things on its on its head right like john c mcginley played dr cox yeah. on the on the show and he was a jerk but this the lessons and 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 the mentorship that he provided to yeah. JD in the show really you, you can see those parallels in in real life as well. So listen, this show Scrubs, I think for its representation, ten out of ten. What amazing! That's great. Okay, so let's end on a couple of more serious shows that took themselves pretty seriously and. Um, and seem to take the medical world seriously, I want to talk about House. So I only can judge House based on acting performance, and I think that that actor, uh, Hugh Laurie, I still can't, the first time he had a British accent, I was like, what? Speaking of being (laughs) lied to, I was like, you phony, you fraud, how could you do this to me? Uh, But it only served to... Um, you know, further, further uh, entrench my belief in this guy's uh, fantastic acting. But how does it do as as a medical show? So House, again, I really liked it. And again, I'm saying my biases right at the top. House started in around 2004, 2005. And that's when I started my independent practice as a pediatric neurologist. Um, I think, you know, would someone who's as crotchety and addicted to pain medication as House really survive in a um, teaching hospital as long as he did? Probably not, but that is a lot of the conflict in the show. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't hide away from the fact that they, he has some supporters and a lot of detractors, But and he's also part of this division of what's called diagnostic medicine. Well, that's so, what right. I wanted to ask you. Is that a real thing? He's like a medical no. private investigator or something. Or- right, so that's where it... it so. In terms of the overall concept of solving medical mysteries, I mean, that's what I love about neurology specifically, but medicine in general, is that I love love it. Like trying to figure out what's going on based on the clues of how a patient presents, like Mm. what they're what their story is when you examine them what it shows what the MRI shows how you add all those things together. I mean, that's why I practice medicine. And so to encompass that was amazing. I loved it. Uh, they had a neurologist played by uh, the great Omar Epps on that. So, I, of course, I identified with Omar Epps's character. But there's no diagnostic medicine. That doesn't exist. All medicine is diagnostic by definition because one of the purposes is to come to a diagnosis, right? So that doesn't exist. So that was a bit of a stretch. And they also did some things in the, as you said, they were like private investigators, right? They'd see the patient in the hospital and then they'd go and like break into their house to like look for clues and what they could have been poisoned with. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> You're going to go to jail if you do that. So that, so I am torn a bit because that stuff is a bit ridiculous, but the actual metal, medical, uh, diagnoses they came up with was correct like that's how a patient were presented that's how you would think you know they have this diagnosis do they have that diagnosis so um i would give house probably an eight out of ten stethoscopes pretty good 
Pretty good. Way to go, House. Based on a completely uh, faulty and non-existent uh, premise, still <laughs> yeah. gets an 8 out of 10. Okay. Another medical show that I remember quite well, even though I had no real interest in medicine, um, but somehow still found myself watching this show so often. That speaks to me as how great the show must have been. What did I, uh, an idiot, a wayward idiot in the 90s, know or care about medicine? Probably just had a crush on George Clooney from an early age. Still do. Uh, maybe that's why I watch it. But I wanted to know about ER. How did ER do as a show from a medical perspective? Yeah, I mean, that is one of my favorite shows. We know it was created by Michael Crichton, who we know, Jurassic Park, uh, but uh, Westworld. But in fact, Michael Crichton uh, was a physician. A lot of people don't know that. So he was approached. Oh, I didn't uh, John Wells was the producer. Spielberg was involved in the production as well to create this show. And so I think it, it's very influential in medicine. Like right now, you might see a lot of people because of coronavirus deciding to become an epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist, which we wouldn't have, mm. we don't even know what those terms were, you know, two years ago. But now that's like the hot, epidemiology is like the hot thing. And, but if you go mm. back to the mid 90s when ER was on, this made people and my colleagues want to go into emergency medicine, not just to go into medicine itself. It influenced a lot of people, but a lot of people want to become emergency room doctors because of this, because it was essentially those scenes in the ER were, it was an action movie, right? It was an action movie mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember, uh, and I don't know how much of this was Spielberg or the other directors who were involved. They had some amazing directors on that show. Uh, well, they'll pan, they'll do a 360 pan around the patient in the emergency room and, and yelling out this. And, and what they did was they didn't dumb it down. They had they were calling for things, right? Like, we'll do a Chem 7, which is something that we don't use that phrasing in Canada, but they order that in the States in terms of a, a blood chemistry panel. And they'll just call these things out. They never explain what they were. They just said, we're doing these things. Sure. And, and, the, and the chaos and the excitement that they created. Now, let's be honest, like... Uh, those things that occur in one episode of ER would probably happen in like six months in a, in a regular ER, not in one day or one shift that's portrayed on, on the on the show. But um, I thought it was pretty good. And and how you see these patients for this short period of time in the emergency room and, and uh, the interactions you have with them, I thought it was pretty good. And then there was a couple episodes which were just, you know, I, I think blew my mind when they came out. Like Love's Labor is Lost. Do you remember this uh episode from the first season where Anthony Edwards' character, Dr. Green, deals with a, a woman uh, who passes away in childbirth and having to deal with that and speak to the family about that and, mm -hmm. and the you know tragedy that unfolds over the course of that episode. And then uh, the one, you said George Clooney, the one that made him into an action star, in my opinion, uh, uh, at least back in the 90s, now he's just become a great actor, was Hell or High Water. Do you remember that episode where he has to rescue the kid from the storm drain? You're giving my memory way too much credit, but uh, he had to a rescue- A child from a storm who, 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 drain. I don't even remember how this yes, kid got caught sure. in a storm drain, but he did. And, right. uh, and then you can see, as you're watching the show, you can see a star, you know, making performance by George Clooney. So anyway, mm. many, many great episodes, many great actors uh, over the years. Uh, but I think it, it was one of the first TV shows to really take medicine seriously and not dumb it down. So for that, uh, I'll give it a nine out of 10 stethoscopes. We'll end with a show that um, 
you know, I was uh, I was in uh, not a great relationship for a few years or less than a few years. But I, in, in this relationship, I was in the only thing that really gave us comfort. And we would occasionally laugh together. My girlfriend and I was uh, was this show Grey's Anatomy. I have no idea why. I think just watching uh, Robert. Uh, what's his name? Dempsey, Patrick Dempsey. Just watching right. Patrick Dempsey made me happy. And also, I think, you know, uh, you cannot discredit Shonda Rhimes, who's a creator, showrunner of Grey's Anatomy, what she's uh, what she's able to do uh, with television. And then eventually Sandra Oh came on to the show or was she there at the beginning? Anyway, she's there at the beginning. She's yeah. there from the beginning. Sandra Oh, I thought great, some great um, performances as well. And uh, and Meredith Grey, you know, I already like Meredith Grey from her role in the, in the movie Old School. Uh, you know, one of my favorite comedies. So I was like, this thing kind of works. It's got the right elements, good people. And, um, and of course, I'm biased because it was, you know, the one time a week where my girlfriend and I, who were not getting along, would have a little bit of a positive <laughs> time. So how did it do as a, uh, as a, as a medical show? Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I had the same sort of thing, though. It was my wife, who I was married to at the time and still married to, but we would watch it together. She loved the show. Uh, she and her and her friends would always talk about it. Um, and I will support you with Sandra Oh, because she's from my hometown Ottawa, of Ottawa Canada, yes. uh, and she is great. Uh, and, and, and they took a specific ta tack, right? They were looking at uh, surgeons specifically, right? And, and, and different surgeons in different fields. And they concentrated less on the medical aspect, which you could think of that was maybe a bit more uh, house. And Grey's Anatomy was a bit more of the surgical aspect. So that definitely made it exciting with the surgeries and having to scrub in and the, and the different things. And I think... Um, I think overall it was good. Uh, I, I think they had some good representations of surgery, obviously dramatized, but I thought it was fair. Uh, a lot of the, like the hanky panky that goes on in yes. the call rooms, in the call rooms. And I mean, come on, that doesn't happen. Like you'd be, we all know you'd be fired immediately if any of that happened. So that's a bit unrealistic. But I think the actual patients they saw in the surgery was, was not, not bad. Uh, so I'd give them a seven out of 10 stethoscopes. I'm pretty impressed with the exception of patch Adams. Uh, I, I really thought some of these guys would go down because, um, when I, I met a police officer on a film once and he told me that police shows are unwatchable because he's like, we would never do that. You know how many, you, you need a warrant for that. Or you, th that's not how that goes. You can't just go do that. And he's like, in his mind, it's always, he gets jammed up within the first 15 minutes and mentally we're like, this, ah, this show is so frustrating. The only show he could ever watch was The Wire. And he said, The Wire is the closest thing to reality. Um, I'm going to ask you about one final show because it is, uh, it's such a huge hit right now with so many people. I don't know it as well as I should, but I've been thinking about getting into it. And a lot of people are talking about it. It's The Good Doctor. How do you feel about this show? Good Doctor is interesting. It's actually also created by David Shore. David Shore created House as well, right? So, and I think uh, they're trying to compare House with uh, the main character, Sean Murphy, on uh, on The Good Doctor. So House is this, you know, crotchety guy, whereas, I guess, Sean Murphy, who's played by Freddie Highmore, who we might remember from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. movie, uh, the Tim Burton movie. Sure, sure. Um, so he has uh, he is uh, autism in this uh, show, right? That's the plot. It's basically he's a brilliant person with autism, 
and uh, he becomes a surgical resident at this hospital in San Jose, California. And um, it's, I, so I've watched a couple episodes of this show. It, it's interesting, you know, House is, is too crotchety and this guy is too removed, right? He doesn't know how to do social interaction uh, because of his autism. I would say the, there's more problems with this show, right? There's problems with, uh, so again, hanky-panky in call rooms. <laughs> uh, there's problems, and, and people like subordinates uh, getting involved romantically with people who, who uh, are, are their superiors. Like, I mean, we all know this can't happen anymore. Uh, it, it, it happens. It happens. Inappropriate. Come on. Inappropriate. <laughs> and, and this uh, portrayal of autism I mean, you know, they have, I, again, I won't try to spoil it for people, but they have some flashbacks uh, to some key moments from the Sean Murphy, the main character's life, uh, you know, things that happened mm-hmm. when he was like 10 and how that impacts him later on. But it's almost like he didn't learn anything in between. Like you have a flashback to when he was 10, uh, where he, he learns like the best way to get a neighbor's attention is to throw a rock through a window. And then as an adult, uh, when he's trying to get a pathologist to run a test, he's like threatens to throw a rock through the window of their office. I mean, come on. I mean, what, <laughs> you know, he learned, uh, you know, life in those 15 years in between those two scenes. Right. And the fact that you think that someone who has autism wouldn't learn like that, I, I just I found it pretty unrealistic. Uh, so I think their portrayal of autism, the, the, the portrayal by Freddie Highmore is actually very good. He's a great actor doing a great job. I think the writing is a bit weak. The medicine I think is reasonable. But again, you know, if we're talking about the portrayal of autism as a medical condition, I got to bring this one down to a, like a five out of 10 stethoscopes. Good doctor doesn't get a good the grade mediocre, by Freddie Highmore. mediocre doctor. The mediocre doctor. Now you're nailing it, huh? Manage our expectations, people. Well, that's great. That's uh, that gives people some um, as we uh, as we continue to uh, spiral through this pandemic. If there's things you didn't, uh, hey, you haven't watched. Some people are like, I finished the internet. Well, I bet you didn't go back and watch a whole bunch of Doogie Howser. Uh, you can revisit Scrubs, Grey's Anatomy, if you like. House all recommended. By uh, by our good doctor Asif Doja, nah, pain me to say it. So that's our show for today, uh, Ali. Before we go, anything to plug? Sure, man. You want to? Uh, if you're in the podcast world, you like eating and drinking. I've got a podcast with a friend, Marco Tempano, called Eat and Drink where he makes a cocktail and I give you some recipes or a recipe for some great dishes. Um, Also, I have a book coming out in October, October 5th. My book, um, Is There Bacon in Heaven? Modeled after Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Not really, but she's an influence. Uh, That comes out with, uh, with Simon & Schuster. How about yourself? What are you plugging, bud? I'm just plugging this podcast and I'm hoping that people will subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. Uh, And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Dr. V Comedian. Don't put the S in there. Dr. V Comedian. Yes. Do what he said. Good ideas. We'll see you next time. See you again.